0: Alright, we've had so many people demand that we get Mark Williams Thomas back on. He's got almost 2 million views on the Savile stuff that we did. It's some of the biggest stuff on the channel. He's got his own channel now and his own podcast, which I will be going on soon. And all of Mark's links will be in the description box below this video. So please check out what he's doing. We'll talk more about that at the end of the show. But this show is actually about Madeline McCann. Now, a huge thank you for coming on, Mark. I know you were involved, you know, revealing the Savile stuff early on, which was a a, a big angle. With the McCann case then, what was your interest in that in the beginning?
1: Yes, probably the the three
0: cases that have
1: dominated my career. That's uh, Madeleine McCann, Oscar Pistorius and Jimmy Savile. Those are the three biggest cases. And I think if you talk to any member of the public who's interested in crime, they will know those three cases. Madeleine McCann, has been massive and it continues to be massive in our way because there are so many variables there's no answer we don't know what's happened to Madeline but of course those people who are fascinated in crime have an opinion and opinion is so divided it's probably the most divided views that people hold in relation to any crime that I have been involved in investigating I mean we've had the Nicola Bully case recently which attracted international attention it was huge but actually when you look at that in comparison to Madeline McCann, that's now gone quiet. But Madeline McCann hasn't; it continues. I mean, listen, here we are talking about Madeline McCann decades later,
0: and it still fascinates people. All right. Before we get into the basics, then recently we had this woman out of Poland pop up. Is that a case of imposter syndrome, like we saw? We've seen that, you know cases of that before. Uh, what, what was your take on her claims? Because she had the eye discoloration. I-
1: Yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw that, it was brought to my attention straight away. As soon as I saw it, I looked it up. I did a bit of research around. uh, And very sadly, it's an individual who's got some clear mental health issues in her life. And it was never going to be her. Very, very sad. And when you started to look about the response in relation to her family and what they had said, uh, and of course what the authorities were saying, it was very clear that it wasn't her. I mean, I think over almost overnight she attracted almost a million, a million followers on Instagram. I mean, that's, that's just a phenomenal because this is the attraction that Madeline has. This is the the draw of people to it. You know, this is an individual who claims that she was Madeline McCann. She had a you know, she had a, a slight disfiguration in her eye. Uh, she had some other marks on her body, and she says they were entirely consistent with uh, Madeline. She also talked in terms of she didn't understand, didn't know about her upbringing, her parents hadn't spoken to her about it. Actually, when you get down to the numb of it, that wasn't true. She was a fantasist and made it up. But very sad, very, very sad for two reasons. Firstly, of course, for Jerry and Kate, and for Madeline's. Uh, brother and sister and the rest of the family uh, and secondly of course for her and her family because the impact on her to come out and talk about something like that you know, for that period of time and of course the fallout now for her is very significant. I mean she she will be forever known by people who know her and people in that community as the fantasist who believed that she was Madeleine McCann and she may well have believed she was Madeline McCann. I mean one of the things that often comes out when I do my investigations is people say to me but do they do they really believe what they're saying and very often they do they've got themselves into such a position that they are convinced they are what they say they're saying and as a result of that even if you said to them, well, it isn't you're just not telling us the truth they believe they're telling the truth and I think in relation to her she absolutely believed that she was Madeleine McCann
0: Yeah, and she put up some timeline saying that she was going to do a DNA test. Do you know whether that was ever done?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, the police refused to do a DNA test because the police did check backgrounds in relation to her and everything that she's saying and very quickly realised that she was a fantasist. What she was saying wasn't true. So there was no DNA obtained. You know, that DNA is a very personal thing they'd obviously have to cross-match that with DNA from Jerry and Kate uh, who were never going to cooperate with that so that was a that was a a line that was put out that was never true she's never going to have a DNA tested and compared in relation to that because they established that it clearly wasn't her on every other level.
0: All right so we've got a lot of young people on this channel and let's just go over some of the basics then for people who are not familiar with the case. What happened on the day in question? Well
1: Let me give you some context. And and I think I passed over the initial question you asked me is kind of like, why was I involved? So this was a story that broke on Five Live. It broke on Five Live in the early hours of the uh, 4th of May. And it was picked up in the UK, having initially been highlighted by the uh, ITV Good Morning Britain, and I think it was called in those days, because a member of the family had phoned them and said because there was a there was a contact there and said our our, um, our friend's child or our relative child had gone missing and as a result of that we want to bring that to the attention of you and to the public. Anyway, that then ran in the uh, on telly and it subsequently got picked up by all the nationals. Uh, and reason being is because the whole profile of Madeline is one that's attractive to the media. And let's be clear about that, is that everybody has a price on their head. But depending on who you are and your status and your upbringing, it will very much dictate on the response that you get. If you are a white, middle-class, upper-class girl uh, who comes from a good family and background, you will get the highest profile, certainly in the media, and you'll get the best response from the police. If you are a, if you are a black, inner-city boy, who may well have gone missing before, or certainly is coming from a lower-class poverty household, you won't get the same response. Now, that's a reality, and some people will object and be angry that I say that, but that is absolutely reality. It's been supported by many senior police officers who would say exactly the same. So, picked up by the national headlines and newspapers and telly in the UK. And I remember I was driving to uh, Cardiff. I was on the M4, and I heard it on Five Live. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, there's more to this. There is more to this. The stories, when they go out there in the public domain, you suddenly get a feeling as an investigator, as a former detective, there's more to this. And and I immediately thought, this has got legs. This is going to run. There is a lot more to this. And at the time, I was doing a lot of work with Sky News. And I phoned up the Sky News producer. And I said to him that there is more to this. There's definitely more to this. And he said, you think you're right. Are you able to come in this afternoon and have a chat with us about it? And I did. And I went in that afternoon to Sky to talk to them about it. Uh, That was on the Friday. Uh, And then on the Saturday, they were still covering it. And I remember it was the one and only time I've ever allowed a TV crew into my house. I'm a very private person in terms of my home. And it was the only time I ever let them into my house. And it's never been since. And so they came into my house. They uh, did uh, some filming with me. And the story was now growing, growing, all the networks were following it. And I remember the next morning waking up and at the time I was doing my master's dissertation and I woke up early because weekends was really the only time I could get some, my head down to, to really study and write. And I woke up at about six o'clock and I remember waiting till 8.30 to phone the producer that I was working with at Sky and saying, let me put something to you. I think it would be really useful to go out on the ground in Pride of See the scene. You know, as any investigator will always go to the crime scene. Let me go out there and let me cover it for you on the ground. Now, his response was, that's fascinating. We've never done that before. But let me speak to the editor. Anyway, within half an hour, he phoned back and said, can you get on the plane at 2.30? And so I got myself to uh, to Gatwick or Heathrow, wherever it was, flew over to uh, Portugal, drove down to and got a lift down to Pride de Luz. met up with Anna Botting and Anna Botting and myself, we fronted up the the coverage of it on the ground outside the apartment for the next week. And it was absolutely incredible. You know, the journey that was taking place, not just in relation to the British media, but this was a worldwide media event. And as the days went on, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was on the ground within 72 hours. But we started to see the world media descend and the story was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what we did know very early on was that all the media coverage was being followed by Gerry and Kate and the other family members.
0: Okay, keep going
1: so 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 effectively we were outside we based ourselves outside and on the first day I set about doing a review looking to see what evidence was known what could have happened to her and as part of that we got access to a villa that was almost identical uh, which was just across the road from the villa that Madeline was in and we ran a couple of you know experiments we can we, we were able to look to see whether or not you know what's the likelihood of being able to gain access Uh, from inside to outside and from outside to inside. We looked at the shutters. We looked at the back patio door. It was warm. It was really, really warm. And what we established and through the contacts and through what was coming out now through the media, we established that the uh, back patio door was unlocked. There was a lot of confusion over whether or not the front window was open, was unlocked, uh, was left open, uh, was shut. Uh, What we did know is the front door was locked. It was a very solid wooden door and that hadn't been opened, but that was locked. So one of the things the police were focusing on and one of the things that was being pushed out in the very early days, and we can remember looking back at some of the, fo- of the videos that were uh, footage that was covered, which was showing the C- crime scene investigator you know, uh, dusting the windows, was that the view was that the offender had gone in through the window and, and exited either out through the window or, or out through the back door. Um, but what was really significant was that there was no disturbance in the apartment in any way at all. And they only took Madeline. This is, of course, the account that was being given, because at this stage, the narrative was that Madeline had done uh, two things had happened to Madeline. She had either wandered off or someone had abducted her. That was the narrative that was being put out there in the very early days. And what we, we established, we had a Portuguese uh, interpreter with us. What we established was that the Portuguese press were every morning delivering a new line or a new piece of information. And it was quite clear. And what I established when speaking to the Portuguese uh, interpreter was that the Portuguese media. So the Portuguese police were feeding the media the stories. And in fact, they did that throughout the whole of the time really, that the story was massive. They were feeding the story. So the narrative that was being put out into the Portuguese press was the police narrative. And so every day we knew kind of where the lines of inquiry the police were following. And we did an inquiry within the apartment. And I effectively said, you know, I think it's highly unlikely somebody has climbed into the window. uh, But it is more likely that the back door is both the entrance and the exit in whatever manner uh, madeline left i either the fender came in or or madeline left herself also went and uh, went and got up in a helicopter now i had a massive fear of helicopters at that stage mm. i remember doing a, being in a helicopter as a young lad uh, when i was in my combined cadet forces stages and i was in a helicopter and i was absolutely petrified i don't think i opened my eyes the whole time i was in this helicopter So when my producer said to me, Mark, we'd like to put you up in a helicopter over the border of Portugal and Spain and just give some commentary in relation to that. And I went, you're having a laugh. That's not happening. I said, there's no way I'm doing that. And uh, they said, seriously, you'll be all right. And it was brilliant. I had a really long, long um, experienced cameraman, an old timer. And he said, Mark, listen, he said, I get where you're coming from. You'll be fine. Just sit at the back. We'll put you at the back, not the front and you'll be fine. You know, I'll I'll monitor, you'll be okay. And I thought, come on, you've got to pull yourself together and do this. And I remember speaking to my agent and saying, I just don't know if I can do this. She said, no, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. Anyway, get to the helicopter, get in it, get up up off the ground, start to do some filming. And I absolutely loved it. I I love it now. You know, I'm regularly flying helicopters now, and I absolutely love it. So we went up, flew over the top, landed actually right by the border of Portugal and Spain. And the reason for doing that is I wanted to show how easy it would have been if an offender had driven off with Madeleine. And bearing in mind there was no closing of borders or anything like that, how easy and quick it would have been for them to get out of Portugal and into Spain and then obviously go wherever they wanted with the the open territories, really. But also it gave us an opportunity to look around the uh, area from the sky and be able to look at potential locations, either deposition sites or locations where perhaps she could have wandered off from. But it also gave, obviously, a, a really good 3D image of that location uh, in to be able to put it into some real context. Uh, and by day three or four, the view very much was, that was being peddled, was that this was a you know, an abduction. Now, it didn't last for that for very long, because, as I said, the press were feeding information out there, which was coming to them from the Portuguese police, and quite quickly the narrative changed and the focus became the family, Jerry and Kate. All right, before before they we get to, to that, Monday.
0: before we get to that, then let me ask you a question. So what time was her disappearance notice at? And what were her parents doing prior to the noticing of the disappearance? So the timescales we can't be
1: certain on timescales. What we do know is that Madeline was put to bed. When Jerry, in the apartment, when Jerry and Kate and the other family members all went to an area which was called the Tapas Bar, which was in, in essence within the same resort, but not accessible by a straight path from the bedroom or the, the apartment to where the Tapas Bar is. So, to try and give it in context in a visual way so that your listeners can understand it, is what basically happens is that you've got the apartment block. And when you come out the back of the apartment block, it takes you down some steps onto a footpath. That footpath runs along a road, which is outside the apartment. You then go down that apartment block and you have to then turn right into the apartment through an opening, which would take you back into the apartment complex. So in order to move from the apartment where Madeline was sleeping and to go meet her parents who were in the tapas bar, you had to go out of the compound onto the public road, back into the compound to go and see them. They were some distance of probably 60 to 80 yards away. There was no line of sight. And by line of sight, what I mean is that sat at the tapas bar, you couldn't see anybody that came or went from the back of the apartment. So anybody could have walked up there and they wouldn't be seen. There wasn't a clear line of sight. So what happens is uh, Sean, Amelie and Madeline are put to bed. Jerry and Kate go over to the tapas bar, leaving them asleep. Nobody else uh, with them. There's no adults there and leaving the back door slightly ajar. The reason being is it's very hot and they were trying to allow some kind of airflow through that apartment. Uh, They hadn't taken up the offer of uh, babysitters. Uh, And what we do know in the days prior to Madeline's disappearance is that Sean and Amelie had woken up on occasions crying. Uh, And that had been heard by a neighbor who had heard the children crying. And so uh, Jerry and Kate are at the tapas bar. Now, there was an agreement amongst their friends and there was a group that went together. There was an agreement amongst the friends that they would check on each other's children. So they would go back at different periods of time and check on each other's children. There was a check that was done by one of the family members, which was, again, around about half eight, nine o'clock, something like that. And the view was that there was uh, that Madeleine was in bed. Now, at no stage did anybody and, and a friend checked as well as G- as Jerry says he checked. At no stage did anybody actually go into the room and actually physically check that they were in there. And in fact, Jerry's statement himself is slightly confusing because he talks in terms of going and checking, but then he also talks in terms of listening at the patio door or at the door of the bedroom without going in. So slight confusion in terms of what actually did happen. But suffice to say, nobody saw Jerry. nobody saw Madeline from the period of time that Madeline was put down, nobody independently did, put down and the alarm was raised. Now the alarm was raised somewhere of time around 10 o'clock uh, when uh, Kate goes back and identifies that Madeline is not in bed. The only things that were missing was her cat her, her, um, from the bed was, was Um Her cuddle cat was there, which is kind of like a little teddy bear. That was still in the bed, uh, but Madeline had gone. And then that, the alarm was raised. And the result was that the local police turned up initially. Local police over there have very little crime experience, don't really know what they're doing. They're more local issues. Uh, and they very quickly called in the PJ's, but they had to come to the the, um, the kind of like the crime investigation police. Uh, but they had to come from, I think it was from Lisbon, but they certainly weren't in the locality. Took them a couple of hours to arrive, and at that point, by the time they arrived, the whole and let's call it a crime scene, the whole of that apartment block had been trampled on, not just by Jerry and Kate and the other family members and friends, but also by almost everybody from that um apartment block and the, the campus.
0: How common was the practice of leaving kids unattended in that complex like that with a door ajar and etc?
1: Well I don't know how common it was but but for them they felt comfortable with doing that. They felt that it was safe. They decided that they weren't going to take advantage of the babysitting offering service. Um, what is interesting with regards to Jerry and Kate is that they took three children you know under five and they didn't have no buggy they took no buggy with them uh in terms of that so they were initially told that they were t- due to eat their food both in terms of uh, dinners and uh, breakfast at the main hotel complex but they uh, said that they would prefer to eat at the tabas bar And reluctantly, the hotel complex said, "Okay, we'll open it for you because there's a large number of you. We'll open it for you and allow you to to go there." They had the facilities if they wanted to, and of course, they could also have potentially used each other within the group that they were with. That one night, perhaps one family. Drops out and they sit with all the kids, but you know, and and not not all not everybody went. There were some uh, of that group who who did spend time and stayed at home and watched their children, but they took the decision that they were going to leave their three children in the apartment block on their own whilst they went to the tapas bar.
0: Did they ever state why they didn't uh, take up the babysitting facility that was available? I don't, don't believe there was any real clarity in
1: terms of why they did or didn't. I, th- I think they felt that it wasn't an appropriate service to do. I think there were some questions about whether or not there was a fa- that facility properly existed that night uh, to be able to provide it. Um, and ultimately, they, they didn't use it. There was one really interesting uh, point, which is we know that in the days leading up to Madeleine's disappearance, that Sean and Amelie were heard to cry because uh, a neighbour, upstairs neighbour, heard that. What we also know, and in an age-appropriate way, is that on the morning of the disappearance, Madeline said to Gerry and Kate that she was woken last night by Sean and Amelie's. Where were they? Because she'd obviously gone to check to see where mum and dad was, and they weren't there. Uh, in which case... Jerry and Kate, again age appropriately, said to Madeline, Well, we were only in the Tapas bar across the way. And I think that is a really, really significant point, and, and I'm sure you'll want me to explain later why. But that is really, really significant. On the morning of Madeline's disappearance, she said to her parents, Where were you last night when Sean and Amelie
0: woke me up? Perhaps you could expand on that now then.
1: Well, why that's really significant is that that means that that uh, Madeline is fully aware of where Jerry and Kate are. And in order for her to go and talk to mum and dad, she would have to have left the apartment block via the back door, gone onto to the public road path and then back in again some 50 yards down the road. So what that means is that in order for her to go and speak to mum and dad, she is out of the complex. She is in the public domain and therefore if anybody had wanted to snatch her to abduct her, the access was there. And there is only two elements that are crucial that exist within regards to the abduction of children. There are three elements, but the two are the most important. That is access, opportunity and motivation. Now, motivation uh, is different to everybody. If it's in relation to the abduction of a child, uh, it may well be sexual, it may well be uh, power control you know, all of those issues but actually motivation from an investigator's point of view doesn't help you when you're starting to investigate yes down the road you know once you've caught your offender it can be very interesting to find out where the motivation sits but at the initial period of any investigation is about access and opportunity what is the access in order to uh, uh, commit your crime and what is the opportunity okay so let's look at both of those in order for her to be abducted, she goes out of the apartment block and onto a public road. Uh, offenders, uh, where the child is unknown to them, it is almost unheard of that they will go into an apartment block and abduct a child. It is almost unheard of. It, is, it certainly never happened in the UK, and it's very, rare to have happened around the world. So you could, you could almost with certainty rule out that the offender enters the apartment to abduct her. But she is now on the public road. And what we do know from experience in relation to child abductions is that they are predatory and they they are opportunistic. And by that, I mean they're not uh, planned in terms of who the victim is. Yes, they plan to abduct a child, but not a specific child. And when we look at two of the most high profile cases, and that is Jeanette Tate in 1978 in the West Country and... um, Sarah Payne, in relation to uh, in Surrey, in Roy Whiting. So, what happens is Roy Whiting, a known abductor, he'd abducted a child previously, uh, had a custodial sentence, but was released that morning. He set out to abduct a child, not Sarah Payne, he had no idea who he was going to abduct. He drives down to uh, the south uh, of England, and whilst he is there, he is beside a field and he sees Sarah Payne. Now, Sarah Payne happened to be walking with her parents and her brother. Sarah walks some distance away from her parents and brother through a hole in the fence and Roy Whiting abducts her. Now, the point to which her brother uh, appears through this hole in the fence that, that Sarah just walked through, he sees the back of a white van disappear. Nothing else sees the back of a white van. That white van belonged to Roy Whiting. And in fact, it was such a significant sighting that it enabled the police very quickly to get on to Roy Whiting as being a suspect. And I know that because uh, very shortly after uh, Sarah Payne's disappearance, uh, when I got back to work, I was initially on leave. And uh, when I went back to work, which was probably about four days, three or four days later, uh, I joined the task force to look for the British, uh, so the Surrey element of the potential offenders. We looked at two key targets and one of those key targets we were told about was Roy Whiting. And the police had him under their sight right from the very early days. We looked at another possible suspect. Um, so they had him and Roy Whiting didn't set out to abduct Sarah Payne. She just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then look at Jeanette Tate. Jeanette Tate is out delivering newspapers with some friends. She cycled down a hill. And when she gets to the bottom of the hill, she's abducted. short distance behind her are our friends and by the time they get over the top of the hill and get to the bottom of it she's gone her bike is on the ground and she has vanished her body has never been found but robert black is certainly i believe he's now dead is what was the person that abducted her and subsequently killed her it fits his mo to an absolute t he was never brought to justice but the point being. Is that she was just a matter of seconds away from her friends, and significantly, she was never targeted that day. That wasn't a, a time that you could be sure that she'd be in that route in any way at all. So they're opportunistic, and I believe that's exactly what happened with Madeline. I've written about it. I've given it's given it's had worldwide coverage. My opinion in relation to this. Not everyone agrees. There'll be some that go that makes a lot of sense. But there'll be a lot of people, of course, who are absolutely divided in that. They say, no, that's not possible in any way at all. The reality, of course, is nobody other than the offender or whoever the offender or offenders have spoken to knows what happened to Madeleine. Uh, and the reality is, of course, I don't know more than anybody else other than I've done a very extensive review. I've been to the location. I've looked at and read all the evidence. I've spoken to all the key people involved in that. So in in terms of being informed, I'm probably one of the most informed people in regards to what I believe happened to Madeleine McCann.
0: So you said that the police turned the sights on the parents. And uh, working in law enforcement yourself, isn't that a natural thing to do to suspect the immediate family members?
1: Absolutely, but they did it the wrong way round. They should have been right under the spotlight from day one. You clear, it's a terminology we use in the police, it's clear the ground from under your feet. They are the prime suspects. What we know in relation to the, certainly, uh, offences against children uh, and offences in relation to abduction or murder is that it is normally someone known to the child. You know, stranger abductions, murders are, of children are very, very rare. And so when it does occur, the first place you look is the relatives, the family. They are your initial target. To go looking for an abductor to begin with is absolutely the wrong way because that's the hardest thing to prove. You know, how do you how do you start to look for an abductor? You need to build all the evidence up. You need to get everything, in all your ducks in line and, and hope that they do line up. Whereas, of course, in relation to... Family members, we know statistically and we know evidentially that it is normally a family member who is involved in a case against a child or, or certainly someone known to the child.
0: So, what mistakes did the police make?
1: Well, they went after looking for an offense, they look after looking for a stranger, you know, a stranger, which is such a difficult thing to do. And I think as a result of that, They failed to do some of the really basics, which was to secure evidence at the crime scene. That crime scene was walked upon. There was a lot of of cross-contamination in that crime scene. They failed to properly secure evidence in relation to Jerry and Kate, sat down really early on and got real detail from them. They failed to preserve the external crime scene. You know, I made comments on day three or day four that if you wanted to, you could just simply walk up the back steps of the door, back steps into the apartment. Uh, and there was nobody on those steps in any way at all. There was no police there, other regular presence outside the property, uh, and also the roads. The roads weren't secured, and I know the roads weren't secured in the hours after this case came out because I covered it, as I said, I went over there within 72 hours for Sky News, and it just happened that whilst I was in my hotel room and there was some coverage that I was, that, that I was going over there and in my hotel room, the police officer, retired, ex-police officer, found out I was staying and left a message actually on my hotel room and said, Mark, very strange, obviously I now live out here, you probably don't know that. And I'd worked with her previously uh, when I did an investig- a, a massive investigation. She came, online, uh, came and worked with me on it.
0: When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging they have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and of course the snacks these Syrian pumpkin seeds from Coro are amazing I have them on my cheese on toast every morning you have been getting into them Jen? yes
1: and all the health benefits it brings (laughs)
0: look at that Quite a lot. lot. Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Koro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coros products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coros online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor.
1: And I said to she said, give me a ring. I can tell you some really interesting stuff. So I phoned her up. I said, Mark, I'll tell you something fascinating. The day after. So Madden goes missing. It hits the national headlines the following morning. That morning, I went down there with my husband and we we said we better take our passports down with us because it's a big story. We might get stopped and prove who we are. So we drove down, walked down there and we walked past the apartment, and I did not see a police officer at all. And at no stage were they doing any hand-to-hand uh, it's a, a forensic searching on their hands, on their knees, none of that. And in fact, we're also are able to establish that at no stage in those early days did they do any proper house-to-house. Now, that's really important because it's a very transient community. And by that, I mean people coming and going from different countries because you know, there's lots of holiday lets there. So you might be there for a week and then disappear. And you'll be perhaps even from another country that, uh, that isn't following the story, particularly within the first you know, week or so. So there were people that undoubtedly were missed by the time they did finally get their act together and start to do some house to house. So that was missed. There was a huge ball dropped in relation to the media. You know, that was a, a massive error of its own. But one of the crucial things is that at no stage. Did they actually, until we pushed them really hard, put out what Madeleine was wearing? There was was very little detail came out in relation to that, very little detail about her at all. How is it that you're going to be able to identify this young person is, if you're not going to give some some specifics about what she was wearing, those types of elements. So it was really poorly handled and and none more so than the first press conference. I mean, I went to the first press conference on it. Kind of, I refer to it now as a Joe 90 moment. I talk about it in my Hunting Killers book, but it's like a Joe 90 moment where I basically say, you know, on this top desk uh was the Navy, the Army and the police. The police officer actually wasn't in uniform, but the Army and the uh, Navy guy were. They talked about checking the water, checking land. And one of the things that was very interesting in this press conference, it was all conducted in Portuguese. And it wasn't until a Sun journalist who became very angry and said, look, you know, this is a British child. You need to answer some British questions. And and rightly so. Got some kind of response. But but there was the arrogance that sat behind it. And, And I always say to police forces and it frustrates me to such a degree is that. When you want to give a press release, sorry, press conference, and you call a press conference for three o'clock, unless there is a developing story, unless there's something really developing within it, don't keep the press waiting. You know, get that story out there, do your bit, and then move on. And we saw it recently with Nicola Bully. You know, there was a you know, some forty minute delay for press conference, not because some new information came in, just because you know sometimes these police officers think, do you know what, I'll just keep the media waiting. The media are such an important role when it comes to murder investigations, missing persons, because the public are the eyes and the ears of the police. They find the jigsaw uh, pieces. It's the police then that have to put the puzzle together. So the, the media play an absolutely vital role. Whatever people's view of the media is, when it comes to major investigations, they are absolutely central. And it's really important that the police work with the media. But sometimes there's this real arrogance, well, we don't need them, we'll do it ourselves. That's when it goes wrong. And actually, if you compare two really significant cases about media, you look at uh, uh, Constantine, where the baby was found in Brighton, which was a coordinated approach between the Metropolitan Police and Sussex Police. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. They were spot on on the way they were delivering uh, aspects through the media. They were very clear. They were concise You know, and uh, very professional. Compare that to Nicola Bulley's case with the Lancashire police, which was It was pretty farcical most of the time. They really didn't know what they were doing. They were passing out inaccurate information. Uh, They were passed out information, which I believe wasn't appropriate to pass out. The whole media management, and indeed, I spoke to one of their senior press officers, and, and he accepted. He said, Mark, we've heard everything you've been saying, and I think you make some really valid points. We're trying to get it better. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. This, you've been in the police service or the, the police service has been around for a very long time. This isn't the first time you've had to deal with a major case. You know, so you shouldn't be learning now. You should have learned how to do it many times. But the Portuguese were utterly out of their depth. So we went to the first press conference, which was called, I don't know, some three or four days afterwards. And it was called in the uh, town centre. And what happened is that uh, the media crews now were quite considerable and the press officer said, what we need to do is we're going to come out the police steps and we're going to do a press conference on the police steps. I remember saying to the the press officer, well, you're going to shut the road off because actually the front door of the police station was then led you onto a small path. And then there was the road crossing over to the uh, town hall centre and and the uh, centre area. And uh, she said, Oh yeah, I said if you do that and you don't shut the road, I said that whole the press are just going to walk in, and sit in the road. I said, do you realise how many press there are here? And they didn't think they really understood that. They then opened up the village hall, and uh, that's when the first press conference happened. And it was the first press conference that was broadcast live. And I remember standing there listening to it whilst the details were given out. But they had no idea. You know, in those days, it was quite clear that they had no. Idea what could have happened to Madeline. They had initially didn't focus straight away on Jerry and Kate, but then within days that kind of started to change. Gonzalo Amaral took over, and he just then, as we now know, became almost utterly fixated on Jerry and Kate as being the prime suspects in the disappearance.
0: So the parents have been criticized about the way they reacted in the aftermath in the immediate days. Can you predict how someone is going to behave when they're in such a state of shock?
1: No, I mean, that's a really important point, surely, because your know, public have tried to make their assessment in terms of whether or not Jerry and Kate are guilty on the way that they've behaved. You know, stress, anxiety, uh, that creates all kinds of different responses from different people. You know, crisis results in different responses. If you put four people in a room and gave them the same crisis... You could say with certainty that not all four would respond in the same way. We all respond in different ways, using our own experience, uh, using the anxieties and the pressures that we're currently facing externally uh, and bring them to whatever is facing us now. So, no, people respond in many, many different ways. And and I think it, it was very easy, of course, for the public to turn around and go, well, because they have done it like this. You know, Kate went and played tennis or or went for a run. Jerry went and played tennis you know, didn't you know, wash the cuddle cap what's all that all about and this is this is people behaving in a way that they are not used to you know when you are at the heart of a story and a story as big as this was with the world's media there there is no right way to act you know people react in all kinds of different ways and and Jerry and Kate did their biggest mistake and, and I've been very outspoken about this their biggest mistake was to say on that night that we did what most parents would do, which was to leave our child and go and eat at a restaurant. That was wrong because they didn't have line of sight. They weren't in control of the children whilst they were there. And yes, they are right in a way that there will be many people that have done it uh, and may well have done it on that night. But they then have to live with the consequences of their actions. That night, they should never have left sean amelie's or madeline in that apartment in fact had they not have left them in that apartment that night the following day they would all have been there we don't know what happened what could have happened in the days afterwards you know years afterwards but that following morning madeline would have been there so they have to live with the consequences of that and i think one of the major problems i've had with them is that failing to acknowledge that actually do you know what we made the mistake here. We shouldn't have left them yet, left him, uh, left her there. And as a result of that, we've got to live with the consequences for the rest of our life.
0: Why and when was a cadaver dog brought in and what were the results? So a cadaver dog was brought in. I'm not sure the exact p-
1: period of time, but the cadaver dog was brought in, a British cadaver dog. Uh, cadaver dogs have a value, but they are only as good as you know, the intelligence given to them, but also uh, they have to be tempered with all the other knowledge known around them. And one of the major problems with the cadaver dog or with any dog is you can't ask them a question. You can't get evidence from them. You can't put them in the witness box. So you have to go on, entirely reliant on how good their training is and what they are giving indications to. And the, effectively, the cadaver dog did gave what the police believe were two really significant identifications. That's firstly in the apartment. There was a consideration that uh, um, that had given rise to uh, some evidence. And then in the back car of a hired car that Jerry and Kate had. Now, addressing both of those in turn, the uh, DNA analysis that they say resulted, or sorry, the, the uh, indication from the cadaver dog within the apartment Uh, Gonzalo Amaral is saying, and this is his narrative, he's never given me an interview, he refuses to give me an interview. And in fact, uh, the only times that I potentially got somewhere to him, he wanted such a massive, massive figure, financial figure, to talk to me. It was never ever going to happen. And of course, I was going to give him a pretty hard time to explain himself. He's never ever properly given that. And uh, all all the interviews I've seen of Gonzalo Amaral, you know, he has not properly addressed or answered any of those. He's very selective in terms of what, what he does. But the, the point being, so Gonzalo Amaral is convinced that Madeleine died in that apartment. Um, he comes up with a number of different theories, but the, the most... Well, the one that I've seen given the most is that he believes she fell off the back of the settee uh, and smashed her head and died. There's other suggestions that she'd been drugged up on cowpole, etc. You know, utter rubbish. You know, firstly, you'd have to to give enough cowpole to knock them out, as in not gain consciousness, they'd be sick. And I know that because I phoned up the poisons unit at Guy's Hospital, who, you know, if you get some kind of poisoning or something like that, they've got a dedicated unit can give you a response to all the things that people can swallow, that can eat. And they said, no, you know, they, she would have been violently sick. So there's no evidence of sick in that property at all. Uh, they say there was some, some blood spatter there. Um, and so none of that stacks up because... If she had a fallen off the back of the city, the, the, the presumption then from Gonzalo Marzo, they then got rid of her body. All right, how? How? One did they? Were they just decide to think? Oh, will, she's died. We're now going to go and dump her body and get rid of her. These are people who loved her. It makes no sense at all. And they're very clever people, so they could quite easily have said, "Well, she fell off the back of the settee and ridden ridden that." They didn't. Their reaction is to go and hide her body. So that makes no sense, first of all. And he doesn't give an explanation as to why you know, he believes that because there's no basis of that. But it, this is plays into the second part, and the second part is is that uh, the cadaver dogs uh, apparently indicated, and they do indicate, but uh, this is the basis of where they say the evidence, indicated that there was Madeline's DNA uh, or or traces in the back of a hire car. Now, the significance of this hire car is this hire car is hired in order to move stuff out of the apartment that they had into a different apartment. And therefore, Madeline's items would have been in that uh, in that car, particularly in the boot of that car where the indication was given. So there's no science there. There's no forensic continuity because what they were saying is, well, hang on a minute, how is it that her, de- her uh, uh, identification could be in the back of this car when Madeline's already missing? There's been no crossover because a car hire wasn't hired until after Madeline was missing. What they failed to knowledge properly is, well, hang on a minute, all of her property's gone in that car. <laughs> And therefore, there's quite easily a cross contamination aspect of that. But then take that one step further. So, if Gonzalo Amaral believes that Madeleine was um, killed, uh, fell off the back of the settee, died, and then they disposed of her body. And that's but what I can see Gonzalo Morales seems to be saying. Uh, it's not very clear what he says. You know, I think there's quite a bit of confusion there. But the aspects of it are is okay, break that down and then say to yourself so, where was she? between the period of time of her going missing on the 3rd of May and the higher car, which was, uh, and I can't remember the figures off my, te- my head, it's something like about 12 to 14 days. Um, where was she in that period of time? Because during that period of time, the media, the police were absolutely everywhere. You know, it was, they were There was no way that Jerry and Kate could do anything without falling under the public spotlight. There's no way to do anything. So the suggestion that Madeline was kept for a period of time, then she would put in the back of the car, which was why the, the cadaver dogs gave an indication, and then go and dispose of elsewhere, is absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense. If you apply logic to it, and, and sadly there's a lot of people involved in Madeline McCann who don't see logic, but there, if you apply logic to it, it tells you words well, it doesn't make any sense because where was her body for that period of time then to be dug up or got, got under the biggest spotlight. There were more spotlight then, not at the time when she went missing, but on that time there was you know it was a, a good hour and a half after you know, she's last seen, where if they wanted to do that, they could have got rid of her body at that stay, when there was nobody around, to suggest that they went at the height of the publicity under greatest scrutiny, got her body, put it in the back of the car, a high car that they police knew they had, and then disposed of the body, makes absolutely no sense at all.
0: And he's saying the car was hired after she went missing to move stuff out of the apartment? Well, it was it was
1: moved, not just to move stuff out of the apartment, because it was moved for them to, to get about, but it did get used to move stuff out of the apartment.
0: But it was hired after she'd gone missing? Absolutely, so, yeah. Okay, and then there's all these theories that they got rid of the body, and that's it's just, it's not possible, is it? I mean... It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. If you stay with Gonzalo
1: Amaral's theory, which is as as I understand it, uh, and I'd love him to you know, correct me or tell me where his proper theory comes from, because it makes no sense. Is that she fell off the back of the chair, and people suggesting that she, you know, she was a, um, uh, she was drugged. You know, none of that makes any sense at all. Because you know, if you follow it all through, they all fall down. Cowpole, no, wouldn't have lost consciousness. Would have been sick. Sick in the apartment, no. Get rid of the body is a natural reaction. Having seen your child be be killed, to just dispose of the body, the two educated people, very educated people, will just simply be able to say, "Well, no, this is what happened." And they're highly trained in medical profession. They could have, you know, could have done all kinds of things to 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 help her recover, whatever that was. So none of that makes sense. And then to get rid of her body or to move her body from wherever it was, under the greatest spotlight that they were. At that day stage, they actually had their phones being tapped as well by the Portuguese police to uh, not just tap, but monitored as to where they were going. So they were doing self-pattern self, uh, analysis as well to be able to show where Jerry and Kate were at any given time. And so when you look at all of that, you know it makes absolutely no sense that they then go and get her body, put it in a hire car. They put it in their own hire car, not, not someone else's, not a high card that they got for a day and got rid of, but they put in a high card that they kept that whole period of time and then go and got rid of a body. Where? Where did they go? Oh, yeah. And that period of time when they were under full surveillance, absolutely no sense at all. And, and people that you are know, convinced that they were involved, right, I'd ask them to hang a minute. Just think to yourself, run through the narrative that you think has happened. And then step back from it in an objective way, not subjective way, in an objective way and say, is that really possible? What is it that throws the ointment into that? And when you do that, your story falls apart. And I'm sure, listen, Sean, I've come on yours. You've got a huge following. Uh, You know, you're brilliant at what you do. You've got a huge following. I will receive hate for this. I will receive people who will be venomous to me. You know, I've already had had a petrol bomb sent to me about work I've done. I've had um, I've had death threats. I've had child abuse material sent to me. You know, after I exposed Savile, someone sent me child abuse material and said, see if you can catch me. I got arrested by the police two days ago. They didn't get this disc. This is what I was up to. And there was a picture of him abusing a very young child. Um, he was managed to be tracked down to an Internet cafe in North London. But unfortunately, the CCTV wasn't recording. I didn't have the time at that period of time to go and try and do my own investigation. So I left it to the police and it drew back. But yeah, I will have, there will people hate me as a result. It's absolutely, this is the most, and I said this right at the very beginning, this is the most divided case that I have ever, ever been aware of. I mean, I when this first happened at Philip Schofield, I'd, I'd sit with Philip on the settee and we'd do an article about it. And Philip would say to me, he said we're in for it now and we would both be inundated with you know vitriol from people about it it is a huge huge dividing story
0: mark did any evidence ever come to light that the parents were in possession of sedatives
1: I think they had uh, Calpol. I think they definitely had Calpol, but nothing there was no other sedatives that were considered to have been in, in a position that they could have used. They were doctors. And, and as a result of that, they definitely had uh, medication on them, um, but it wasn't a, a medication that was of any value that could have you know, could have been used to drug them in any way at all. Cowpole, um, yeah, definitely. But you know, capo is it does capos brilliant. You, know, you ask any parent, Cowpole is brilliant. But it it's not something that is going to you know, to kill you. It's going to make you very very poorly if you take an awful lot of it. And yeah, you know, I've I watched someone on the other day. I won't say his name, but you know, this guy is a former police officer, and, I, and he was on there saying Jerry and Kate murdered. I mean, that, they should sue him. They should sue the pants off him. But uh, he was saying this, and then he said, you know, they're both anesthetists, and it's like. Mm, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You know, they're both trained uh, med- um, medical practitioners. He's a, a, a I think he's a cardiologist and uh, she is a GP. And it's like, well, they're, neither of them are anaesthetists at all. Yes, they've got that, that knowledge uh, in terms of every medical practitioner, but they're not practicing anaesthetists. And, and there's just so much misinformation around there. You know, limited amount. I mean, people say to me, "You read the the PJ files." Do you know what? I read the PJ files probably before most people did. I had the whole files translated. I read every single word of those PJ PJ files. Um, and at no stage is there any evidence at all. And I tell you what, if there was, I'd be out there spoken, and I'd be very clearly. And Jerry, Kate don't agree with all my theories at all. You know, they don't agree with my theory that that Madeline walked out looking for them. That doesn't look good for them. They don't agree with that. But you know, absolutely, and I've been totally clear on this, Jerry and Kate should never have left Madeline that night. But Jerry and Kate have got nothing, nothing to do with her disappearance.
0: So what is the purpose of CalPOL and why did they have it?
1: Well, it keeps children, you know, quiet, it enables them to, to sleep, you know, particularly if children are teething or perhaps they're going through uh, you know not sleeping very well Cowpole's really good and it's a it's kind of like a, you know, every parents uh, jelly baby it's just brilliant if you like jelly babies <laughs> but it's great mm-hmm. it's got a great taste to it kids love it and it enables them to be relaxed it, it's you know, people don't die from cowpole. i mean i don't i don't know but i i, I don't think you'll find a case of a child being killed by cowpole.
0: All right. So you said the parents were on the suspect list in the early days. Who else was on the suspect list? Were any arrests made in the early days? Any interrogations?
1: Yeah. So there was Robert Murat. Robert Murat was an individual who was a local. He lived around the corner. Uh, he was a trans- He became a translator. Uh, he kind. Of, he was a British guy. He put himself into the frame to help translate. Uh, and actually, he was put in the frame by the by the um, uh, one of the reporters from the newspapers who said, "Look, this man suddenly ingratiated himself into the scene. We think he may well have been involved." And you know, I think people were still thinking about uh, Ian Huntley and some of the uh, the other cases that have been around where offenders will often put themselves back into the crime scene. We know that happens. Um, anyway, so. Uh, Murat became a target, really. And the police then started to look at him. They looked at his associates and there was a couple of associates of his that were also arrested and interviewed. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, speaking to Murat's solicitor, who was a really nice guy. And and it was very clear that actually that whole process uh, of Murat was was I had no credence to it. Yes, they were following up on a line of inquiry given to them by the media. And, and it was right to do that. You know, you, you should never close down the lines of inquiry, particularly so early on in the investigation. But Murat had nothing to do with it. And and of course, Murat then subsequently sued, you know, I don't know how many newspapers for the lies and things that came out. I mean, I, the problem with a story like this, it was so big, is that you then get fed stories in a certain way in newspapers. As I said, the Portuguese press were effectively peddling the story of the PJ, who were leaking story to them all the time, uh, and then the British media then started to follow tune in terms of what they wanted to do, which you know at one stage was really single Murat out. But we saw that in relation to Johnny Yates. Joanne Yates, we went missing in in Bristol, uh, and as a result of you know, the again the media put, I think a guy's name was Jeffries, put him into the frame. Uh, it's like the odd guy, but put him into the frame. All kinds of accusations made to him because that was the media narrative they were peddling, and he was absolutely innocent, had nothing to do with it at all. And so, you know, very often there are these people who get uh, pulled into a situation just by the very nature of being there uh, and perhaps sometimes being slightly odd.
0: Bruce Radley. So, the German suspect, how did he come into the picture?
1: So the German suspect, this is something that, that is obviously much more recent. And this is a guy called Christian B. Uh, it's a, a, um, his surname by most isn't used. Uh, but Christian B, he was an individual, well, he is an individual who has a long history of sexual offences against children. And he came out of the blue, really, because what happened is the German authorities were investigating Christian Bruckner for some period of time for offences uh, against uh, children. And they had what they th- thought was a major breakthrough because they uh, were investigating a case. The Portuguese had closed a, 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 a lady uh, at an apartment block in private and the case had been dealt with and looked at by the Portuguese, and they they found no evidence to support in any way at all, and they closed the case. The uh, authorities in Germany asked to look at the case and found a piece of evidence. Now, I don't know the basis of that, but, you know, the Portuguese never found the evidence and the Germans did find the evidence. And the Germans hate Christian B. There's no doubt about that. Certainly the prosecutor does. Anyway, they find this piece of evidence and subsequently he gets convicted for this. He always maintains his innocence. And at that point, he then they do some further examination and some people crawl out the woodwork, old acquaintances Mm -hmm. of him who, who don't like Christian B., and then there became this story that these video cassettes existed of him to other people. And and then as a result of that, they then started to do some investigations. And then the prosecutor uh, comes out one day and says absolutely forthright that he believes that or I don't think it's even believed. But I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Madeline is dead, has been murdered and Christian Buchner is responsible. And goes further than that and says that on the day of the disappearance, Christian Bruckner was using a phone outside the apartment on the day that she was missing and in fact hours before she went missing. And they can categorically link that phone to him. And so that's the the narrative is that Christian Bruckner on the day outside the apartment using a phone that was picked up by a cell tower. Uh, by the apartment and therefore because of his previous in relation to the abduction of children and going into a house and raping an older person he is the killer and that was the narrative that was fed to all the worldwide media and this picked up massive massive attention and i remember listening to it and thinking really yeah he's not not a nice bloke you know because it was pretty much laid in terms of what his previous convictions were but did he really get involved with that anyway i thought i'm going to do some digging around this And very quickly, I established that actually the telephone that was used outside the apartment, the number that was used, was being used by a German. I had a network individuals who contacted me who were kind of like online vigilantes uh, in the network for Germany. And they told me that that telephone was being used by an individual who had gone into a number of forums, chat rooms, Uh, in relation to Germany, and was looking for children. So that was really positive in terms of, okay, so we've got a link of a phone number. Uh, And then we started to dig that further and further and further. And and one of the major problems we then identified, and it was a massive, massive breakthrough. Um, I can't tell you exactly how we got to that breakthrough, because I have to protect the person who was was an absolutely 100% legitimate source. And I'm talking about an authority position. We found out that that telephone number that is alleged to be used by Christian Brookner on the day and the hours prior to Madeline's disappearance was actually not his phone. It was belonging to somebody else he knew, and it was not his phone. We were able to validate that 100% that it was being used by somebody else, and we, we identified who that person was. We then went further with that, and we were then able to do some cell site analysis. Cell site analysis has been given to us by the uh, Portuguese authorities with certainty to say he was outside the apartment at that time. We did some very detailed cell site analysis and were able to say there is absolutely no way, no way at all, you could pinpoint him to being outside of the apartment, so much so he could be up to 21 miles away. (laughs) This is a huge, huge distance away. Uh, and so, sorry, eight kilometres away. Yeah, eight kilometres away, I think it is. But some ma- some massive distance away from the apartment. Um, and so there's no way. So I confronted the prosecutor. I made a programme last year and actually it's just come out on Paramount. Uh, Madeline McCann. You, I think you can still see it on Channel Five, which is a cut-down version of our three hours on Paramount. And that program goes into absolute detail about whether or not Christian B could be responsible for the abduction and murder of Madeline McCann. We lay out all of his previous convictions. We talk about, you know, his crimes against children. We identify one that he's never prosecuted for, um uh, one on a beach that clearly was him. But we look with absolute certainty. We work with him. We write to him. We work with his lawyer. And I can say with absolute certainty, when I confronted the German prosecutor, that he then started to fall apart because he accepted that they are unable to place Christian B outside the apartment on that day. And furthermore, and let me ask you this question, if you were disliked to that degree, as Christian uh, Christian B is, because he had uh, all these previous convictions and offences against children. No stranger to anything. These are people that he knew, but they were sexual offences and and collecting material. Um, If you were that individual, and at that period of time, you would expect, if your telephone number is put into the public domain, there would be quite a lot of people who would phone up and say, Yes, Christian B did have that telephone number. I phoned him, I've spoken to him. It's very much of world's attention. One person who was known to him, who who was an ex, who they'd fallen out, one person came forward and says, yes, I do remember speaking to him on the phone around that time, in the week's privacy. Not on the day, in the weeks prior to that. One person. And that is their case. Their case is built on one person, not on the day, phoning that telephone number, that they can't link to Christian B because we can show that it belonged actually to somebody else and can't show that he was outside the apartment on the day. Their whole case has is covered in, in holes, which is why years on, years on, even though the prosecutor, German prosecutor, has very categorically said he killed Madeleine, there's no evidence. And there's no evidence because he hasn't been charged and it's not there. And I can tell you with almost certainty, you know, if this ever got to court, well, no, if this ever got to court, would be utterly kicked out. I'd stand up there and defend him. And I tell you what, is it about defending a horrible person? Yeah, he is vile. He's absolutely vile. But I don't believe anybody deserves to go to jail for a crime he hasn't commi- they haven't committed. And furthermore, if you put the wrong person in jail, there's someone else out there who's getting away with it.
0: What motivated the German prosecutor to do that then? Was it attention-seeking? I don't know, I and mean, it's very
1: difficult to draw that conclusion, but I think he is he's absolutely fixated on it. What tends to happen sometimes with senior investigating officers and, and politicians and prosecutors is they became—they become fixated on their own narrative, their own hypothesis, uh, and therefore they have to then make everything fit. He's come out in the public domain and says, Christian B's a killer and killed Madeleine. He's now got to make all the evidence fit. When I come along and show him and say, it doesn't, it doesn't work, it doesn't fit, Got a major problem there. And I think that major problem is where he's now. He's been, yeah, he's, he's, he disagrees. He's been said some quite strong things about me in the media. And I've said them about him. He's wrong. He's utterly wrong, which is why Christian B will never get charged with Madeline's murder.
0: So in the interlude before Christian B, were there any other suspects?
1: Uh There were other people. There were other people that could potentially have come into the frame um, as far as you know, potential offenders go, who are sex offenders. They looked at a lot of them. They were able to rule them all out. Uh, there were no real other suspects. I mean, this is what happened, is that in the early days, there was a couple, there was Murat, there was a few other people who were arrested who were linked to Murat. And then it quickly changed to Jerry and Kate. And, and since that point in time... You know, Gerry and Kate have been the absolute fixation of the Portuguese police. They, you know, the Portuguese police have been fixated that Jerry and Kate. Uh, and then, of course, we've had the German uh, Christian B put into the frame. I mean, the G- G- Christian B, the Portuguese and the British police, uh, they've been non-committal. They've said nothing, but they don't believe that Christian B is responsible. I mean, the, the, Port- the British police still treating this as a missing person inquiry. The Germans are telling them that Madeleine's been murdered by Christian B. Well, if they were joined up talking, then the British would be saying what the Germans are saying. They're not. I mean, there was a huge fallout between them. Relationships are better now, but uh, they're not coming from the same area at all. The Germans have got out completely on a limb in relation to this uh, by a prosecutor who who has been very if I'm nice to him, he's been very unfortunate in his translation and the fact that he hasn't been entirely clear um and if i'm not being nice to him he's been quite mischievous in terms of the information he's given out
0: so i watched a documentary about these investigators that were brought in and they uncovered this ring i'm gonna uh refer to these people as adults attracted to kids because youtube um has the problem with the p word So there was a ring of these adults attracted to kids. Online photographs were found, and they couldn't find Madeline, but they did find some kids and found the mums and told the mums, look, here's where your kid ended up, and it was absolutely heartbreaking to see it. Do you think that is a possible outcome of this case?
1: No, and I'll tell you why. Madeline was is the highest recognised individual in the world. She has some real uniqueness about her. Obviously, we've talked in terms of her eye, Um, I believe, very sadly, and and evidence tells us this, you know, the FBI are probably the leading experts in relation to child abductions. They've done the best research. They've got the highest cases uh, uh, around the world in terms of dealing with child abductions. And statistically, and evidence would tell us that she was most probably dead within 72 hours. And her body, uh, just be clear, you know, let's unpack that slightly. Her body's never been found. There's never been any images found of her. We did a lot of work around the dark web uh, in terms of images. And we actually, we've, we got uh, talking to a lot of people or a number of people who were talking about her in, in the time after her disappearance. they basically saying, you know, these pictures have never turned up of her. They are gold dust if they did. Someone sitting on a, you know, a treasure trove. and um, then there was other comments around that, but they, the reality is, is if she had had if she'd have been alive and her photographs would have been taken to her. So if she had been taken by uh, an offender who has a predilection in that fashion, they would have taken video or photograph of them because they collect obsessively. They would most probably lend to share it either in a commercial value or a free value. And they would have appeared. Nothing, absolutely zero has appeared in relation to her on anything on the Internet, dark web or open source.
0: So earlier on, you theorised that she walked out on the street. Then, do you think an opportunist just snatched her? And if so, would the opportunist have took her as far away as possible, as fast as possible, to avoid the police?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, how quick they made away from the area. There's, there's, a, there's a. You can get away from that pride to lose very quickly. It's a very transient community. So there's people around that area. You know, nobody. You, know, you come in there for a day, disappear, come in for a couple of hours, disappear, or stay there for a couple of weeks. You know, you, you've got such a variety of people there. That road that the individual drove down uh, did have CCTV, but on that day didn't work. Interestingly enough, when I went down there, uh, you know, 72 hours afterwards, I went to see the owner of like a, a store, and there's a CCTV camera that points right up the pavement, right up towards the top of the apartment exit, the back door. had Madeline walked down that path and walked in back in again to the uh, restaurant, into the compound, she would have been picked up by the CCTV. But shockingly, the CCTV camera had broken in the months previously, and they hadn't got it fixed. But there was a very interesting piece of information that came out on that day, which was that a dog had tracked from the uh, back of the apartment to a small car park by that shop. They'd actually tracked that. So you know, that's right or wrong, but there was a tracking in terms of a dog from that apartment down to the back. And that tracking was done, you know, I don't know whether it was done with an item of clothing, but it was certainly done in relation to the best way they felt they could do it at the time. So did an offender have a car there? Was an the offender driving past? I don't know, but it's all about speed of exit, really. You get away from that place very, very quickly. No one will stop you. No one will talk to you. And there is no... You know, there's more now, but there was no CCTV in that area that was working at the time, or that was even there, actually.
0: So if a kid were abducted in that fashion in that area, is the likelihood then that the body would have ultimately have been buried?
1: Well, the body's not been found, and so that would suggest that the manner in which of the disposal uh, is such a way that, that the body you know hasn't resurfaced. So that could be you know, one of two things, really. Uh, either on land or in water don't forget they were right by the sea there so that you know if you want to dispose of the body the sea is very good at that you know it, will, it um it takes its secrets with it so you could have disposed there but equally you could have gone to the land you could have um you know don't like talking in too bad of terms because you know they, they could have yeah, disposed of the body either buried or or even you know set fire to
0: Okay, just a couple of general questions then before we wrap this up. We had Gary Glitter in the news recently and the public's outraged, you know, that he's he's back out there and he's on the dark web. Um, do you think that the justice system, when it comes to people who are attracted to kids, do you think that the justice system is too soft? Yeah, I do, I do. I mean,
1: it, it, his fellow inmates absolutely shot actually shot Glitter. So his fellow inmates were aware of what he was doing. And it's the inmates that then reported that to the press and the press that then got him uh, and managed to get him exposed and got back in jail.
0: Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel three Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK Amazon, US Amazon company account, US Amazon, UK Amazon do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press Cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link's in the description box. Cheers.
1: Vile, vile, horrible man. I, I've been very clear in terms of if you commit a sexual offence against a child, and let's talk in terms of either images or, or contact offences. But images, if you commit a sexual offence against a child, you have images. I think you, dis- I think you should have a year's custodial sentence, and I think in addition to that, you should then also have a rehabilitation uh, program. At this present moment in time, you can't do both, so you can't go on rehabilitation program external to the prison and receive a custodial sentence. You can receive a custodial sentence that's long enough for a rehabilitation programme to be done inside, but you can't do both the other way, which is wrong. What we should be doing is considering punitive and restorative in the same way. And I believe that restorative is so important, particularly when we're talking about child abuse images. You know, it's different with contact offences. You know, The response in terms of contact offences can be very different in terms of the restorative evidence. But I do believe we need to do much, much more. I think criminal, the criminal justice system as far as prison is utterly broken. The wrong people are in jail. Put dangerous people in jail. Keep those people who present the greatest risk in jail. Get other people out of jail. You know, I'd love to see in the way that they do in America and other countries, I'd love to see those people who have committed crimes to be on roundabouts. Cleaning them up. I'd like to see them in old people's hands. I'd like to see them wearing uh, orange jumpsuits, tidying up the community. That's what we should be using them for, not incarcerating them, putting them in jail, letting them out one day, you know, one hour a day uh, and not giving them any rehabilitation. Many of these people have got drink problems, alcohol, you know, alcohol problems, drug problems, mental health issues. You know what, prison, unfortunately, for too many people is a revolving door.
0: What do you think about Gary Glitter's first sentence then? Because you talked about images, four thousand images, and he only got four months.
1: Yeah, pathetic. Because years custodial sentence for me for everybody who has possessing a child abuse images. The problem is, is because of the criminal justice system prisons are broke, you can't put everyone in jail. So there isn't anywhere for these people to go. You have to try and deal with it in a different way. Release huge swathes of people who don't present a risk in prison. Uh, rehabilitate them. Work with them. Use them in the community and put the right people who present a risk to children in jail and, crucially, get them the proper rehabilitation so they understand their offending behaviour. It won't work for everybody. Of course it won't. Rehabilitation is not effective for everybody, but I can tell you rehabilitation is massively important when it comes to child abuse.
0: So Glitter's 78 years old. I'm not sure what brain chemicals exactly are driving him to do these things, but do you think that chemical should be, uh, you know, put forth for these people?
1: It has worked for some. It certainly reduces the um, chemicals in your body to attraction and to be sexually, sexually driven. Um, for me, chemical isn't the answer because you still have the thought process, you still have your hands uh, in terms of being able to commit any sexual offences. So I can see chemical having a value to some people, Um, but it's not a solution i think that's really effective it's not a solution that i would be fighting for i'd be fighting for custodial sentences rehabilitation linked to custodial sentences so when they come out they can get on rehabilitation program properly uh, proper monitoring change the probation service has fallen apart but let's properly monitor these people let's put these people so we're properly assessing where this risk comes and let's try and you know meet off the risk before it exists let's let's identify these people when they're perhaps likely to re-offend and before they re-offend let's get them back in jail
0: yeah i mean protecting kids and women from these predators should be the absolute priority of the government but sadly it doesn't seem to be the case all right so you've been on tour and now you've got a podcast you've got a youtube channel do you want to tell the viewers about that
1: yeah so i'm the investigations editor for newsquest newsquest is the largest regional newspaper i came on board Just over six months ago, they reached out to me and said, you know, we want to set up a new investigations team. We want to do uh, crime. We want to feature some of the biggest cases. And I've come on board and we've slowly worked with the rest of the team. And we've got a brilliant output now. So we've got a platform, NewsQuest Investigates, on YouTube. We've got our content there of programs we're making. So we make fairly long form, 15, 20-minute programs of some of the biggest cases, looking at the new evidence. We also have a podcast platform, which is uh, NewsQuest Investigate, which is, you know, Ask Mark. And I go and speak to some of the highest profile people, both in terms of people, cases, uh, investigators, crimes. Sean, as, as as well as you are, you're coming on and you're going to talk to me and we're going to get to some some nub of kind of like you. We're going to turn the table. So I'm going to be asking you the questions <laughs> and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. You're coming on next week. But yeah, check it out. Please go and have a look. And I think you'll find it quite fascinating. I mean, uh, I... I have a very, very clear way in which I work. We've talked a lot, you and I, Sean, over the years, haven't we? I have a very clear way of work. Not everyone agrees with me, but I come with experience. I come with, you know, a very level-headed in terms of how I present things. And I would always say to people is that you don't have to agree with me, but just listen to what I'm saying. You can keep your own view at the end of the day, but you never know what I'm saying to you might ring true and you might think to yourself, do you know what? Maybe I'm not right.
0: The other thing is, Mark, we learn the most from the people we don't agree with.
1: We do. Listen, listen. Challenge is brilliant. I, I think those people that want you to always agree with them, you know, I don't play that game. And and I'm, you know, I'm always there. If someone says to me, yeah, but I think it's this, and and I go, oh, you know what, actually, you probably got a point there or something. I will always look to see whether I got it right. I'm constantly reevaluating. I'm the biggest critic. The biggest critic of my own work. I will look at things. I'm a a total perfectionist. I look at things and think, you know, what could I have done that better? You know, is there a different way of doing that? And I constantly reflect. You know, one of the biggest challenges that we have in society is those people who are prepared, unprepared to listen. Those people who will say, you know, there's white paint in a tin when it says black, and it's and it is clearly black. You know, those people who are utterly driven by their own view. And of course, we all have our own. Uh, sense, we all have our own values that we bring to what we're doing. I mean, my book tour, which is coming to the end, Hunting Killers, one of the fascinating things about it is that it is, and I'll be interested in what your thoughts on this, Sean, is that it, this world, this crime world, this crime genre, is massively women dominated, hugely. The people that come to my audience are almost all women, you know, 70, 80% women. And the men that are there are normally there because the women brought them along. Um, and I think it says quite a lot about the, the, the women's state of mind. It says a lot that actually they're far more inquisitive. They're much more, uh, they're much more open to asking questions. They want to understand the human race much more than I think men. Men tend to deal with things in a very superficial way. You know, it's black and white, this and this and move on. Whereas women are much more inquisitive around that. And this crime genre is huge. I mean, I don't know how many followers you've got, but you, you people are just fascinated to get to the detail, but also minutiae. One of the things that I always talk about is detail. You know, how do you get from A to B to C to D and you get to the Z at the end? Whereas very often people will just skirt over that. You know, you'd start here and you get there. For me, it's about detail. I'm a real details man. I'm a real accuracy man, you know, in a way, sometimes, you know, slightly autistic in a way because I think that enables me to look at something in a way that perhaps other people would don't see it. And I don't accept failure. You know, for me, it's about getting the end result. But I also acknowledge that sometimes you have to put the pen down, walk away for a while and come back and pick it up again. And sometimes you'll see something very different. And I give this when I talk to investigators who are learning to detectives. I always say to them, there is nothing wrong. And actually, it's really important is if you're dealing with a case, just take some time away. Put it down for a period of time, come back to it and look at it with a new fresh pair of eyes. And it's amazing what you'll see. Other avenues will open up. Other opportunities will open up. You put a brick wall in front of me, and I'll find a way around that brick wall.
0: Final question, Mark. What are you watching on Netflix?
1: Uh, do you know what? I, this is probably the first time. I, I can't probably tell you because I am. my life at the moment is utterly bonkers. I am on tour. I'm making two programs. No, I don't know, but I I tell you what the last thing that I did watch and so the two things actually it's not Netflix there's two things that I loved recently. That was Happy Valley, brilliant. Just love it. Gentle, soft but great storyline and Unforgotten. Unforgotten on ITV. I love I I love that. I think there's there I just love him. I think he's brilliant. I I just two great programs, but yeah. When I, when I get a little bit of downtime, which I don't know when that's going to be, but when I get a little bit downtime, I do love binging uh, Netflix, but I haven't got anything on the run at the moment.
0: I think you need nice, soft storylines to counteract all the dark energy from everything <laughs> else you're doing. <laughs> well, it is huge, a dark light. You, yeah, huge, huge thank you for spending so much time with us, for the viewers, if you enjoyed this, please go down in the description box if you're watching it on YouTube all of Mark's links are down there, link for his channel please subscribe and I will be appearing on it soon as well to be able to get to see Mark turn the tables so wherever you are in the world watching this thank you please let us know in the comments what you thought like Mark said I'm sure many of you are going to disagree with him and have your own theories let us know in the comments what your theory is we're open to all opinions and theories and that enhances our critical thinking skills to look at all the, the range of the theory so Thanks for watching. Take care out there. Cheers from London.